0: Hello, I'm Anna Elliott, and this is Blendle Handpicked. If you give me five minutes of your time, I'll give you three stories that stood out above all the rest this week. My first pick today is from The Economist, and it's about why animals engage in homosexual behavior. Or, more accurately, it completely reframes that question for us. Let me explain. More than 1,500 animal species have been observed engaging in sexual activity with members of the same sex. From penguins to squid to monkeys, homosexual activity in the animal kingdom is widespread. But scientists have always been flummoxed by the question of why it happens at all. If the behavior doesn't aid reproduction, why has it evolved in so many creatures? But a new study suggests that we shouldn't be asking that question at all, and researchers are seeking to flip the assumptions that underlie it. In short, we need to stop viewing same-sex sexual behavior as an evolutionary oddity emerging from the normal baseline of heterosexual behavior. Indeed, scientists have always tried to come up with reasons for homosexuality in animals, and most agreed that there had to be an evolutionary benefit to make up for the presumed reproductive costs. But that didn't satisfy these scientists, and their own research suggests that the white heterosexual men who historically dominated the profession projected their own view of how the world should work onto what they were seeing, rather than looking at the actual biology. Homosexual activity, according to this new study, has been the norm since the very first animals came into being, which suggests that it didn't need to evolve or have a reason to evolve at all. This has implications beyond just this study. If the people doing the science can have such a significant impact on the research, we need to pay extra attention to the demographics conducting the experiments. If we do, we'll get better scientific results. For more on this great story, check out the full four-minute piece in The Economist. The link is in the show notes. Next up today is a story from Melinda Wenner-Moyer in The New York Times that busts a bunch of myths about probiotics and explains the science behind them. Many of us take the pills containing supposed good bacteria in the hope that they will give us a healthy gut and other health benefits. It's a huge industry, and probiotics are advertised everywhere. But many scientists and doctors warn that they may not live up to the hype. Studies have shown, at best, uncertain results on the benefits of the supplements, and recent research has even raised some red flags in terms of safety and how well they're tested. Even so, some probiotics have been shown to work in some specific cases. So, as clued-up consumers, how are we supposed to tell whether they'll work for us? A great start would be reading this piece. Wenna Moya breaks the uncertainties down to key questions, explaining in each case what science can actually tell us about probiotics. She lays out certain symptoms that can be alleviated by specific strains of bacteria, and she links to a useful tool for working out the context in which probiotics might be useful. She says that while some strains have been shown to work, it's silly to walk into a drugstore, grab a probiotic, and think it's going to do you any good. The point here is that we're encouraged to be indiscriminate with the probiotics we take. Just because some of them work in some cases doesn't mean we should assume anything with the probiotic label will work for us. And then there's the safety issue. In the US, probiotics don't go through the same rigorous quality control assessments as medicines which means that the contents of a probiotic pill might not be the same as what you read on the packet. On top of that, packets don't always tell you how many bacteria there are in each pill. All this means that consumers have to do quite a lot of research before grabbing a pot of pills from the pharmacy shelf. But more importantly, we need bigger and better scientific studies to determine how safe and effective these products actually are. Until then, there are no guarantees. Check out the rest of this eye-opening, five-minute story in Sunday's New York Times. Finally this week, I've got a story from The Economist on how the 1% might not be as rich as we think they are. It's a belief central to today's politics that the gap in income equality is getting bigger and bigger and the rich are getting richer and richer at the expense of the rest of us. That notion motivates populists who blame the metropolitan elites for society's woes and left-wing politicians who are proposing ever more radical ways to redistribute wealth. And sure, we may feel like we see the truth of it in everyday life, House prices soar to the extent that only the very rich can live in some areas, and certain towns and cities, hit hard by the erosion of old industries, have become very visible pockets of deprivation. But this piece says that the idea that inequality is rising exponentially deserves more scrutiny. In fact, researchers are taking another look at the numbers, and some have claimed that earlier economists who helped create this notion of the increasingly wealthy top 1% made some big mistakes in their research. These new researchers say that income equality in Britain hasn't changed much since the mid-1990s, and in America, it may not have changed since the 1960s. Their other point is that wealth itself is an incredibly difficult thing to calculate, and that has big implications for Western politics at the moment. Several big-name candidates, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, are proposing increased taxes on the very wealthy. But if the richest rich aren't as rich as we think they are, Sanders and Warren may raise much less money than they're banking on. The piece goes on to say that while the actual income equality gap is essentially unknown, these politicians should steer clear of such radical policies. It suggests other ways countries can boost their economies that don't involve gambling on the unknown contents of a few wallets. You can find the full five-minute piece in Friday's Economist. Thanks for joining me for this week's top stories. Check out the show notes for the links to the articles. And if you want to read more, you can go to blendle.com and subscribe to the Daily Digest newsletter, which we send out at 8am Eastern. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts on the show, you can email me at editorial at and you can follow us on Twitter at Blendle. We're taking a break from the podcast for now, but we'll be back in the new year with more great journalism. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.